0: Welcome to Off the Record with James Bell, a legal podcast where we listen to stories that go beyond the courtroom. This podcast is a production of the Indianapolis Bar Association. Now here's your host, James Bell. Greetings. The Indianapolis Bar Association welcomes you to yet another episode of Off the Record. Say, what does October 7th mean to you? To my knowledge, that is not a particularly significant day. I mean, if it's your anniversary or your birthday, then it's significant. And and happy anniversary or birthday, by the way. But I don't think that date has particular significance for the masses. But if you surf the interweb, you'll find out that on October 7, 1996, Rupert Murdoch launched Fox News and the world instantly became more fair and balanced. On that date in 2001, the war in Afghanistan began and never ended. And on October 7, 2003... Arnold Schwarzenegger became governor of California. Bishop Desmond Tutu was born on October 7, 1931. Vladimir Putin was born on the same date in 1952. And Simon Cowell from American Idol fame was born on October 7, 1959. One of those three men I just mentioned was a Nobel Peace Prize winner, but I will let you guess which one that was. This year, October 7th, is the first Monday in October, so that means that the Supreme Court starts its new term on that day. So for our country and our profession, October 7th is a big day, and I want you to be ready. So I've asked Brian Paul, an appellate lawyer from Fagery, Baker & Daniels, to tell us where we've been, where we are, and where we may be going with regard to the Supreme Court. I saw him speak on this topic, and if he doesn't know his stuff, then he certainly fooled me. I mean, he has to know his stuff. He wears a bow tie and glasses and has a beard. So please listen to our interview with Brian and stick around for some words at the end about our friend Norman Lefstein, who sadly passed away recently. But for now, let's go off the record with Brian Paul. <music> Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to another episode of Off the Record. You know, first Monday is right around the corner, and I thought it'd be good to get the indie Bar ready for the new term. So I've invited Fegri Partner, appellate lawyer extraordinaire, and most importantly, Bar Leader Series grad, <laughs> Brian Paul, to go Off the Record with us. Brian, welcome to Off the Record. Thank you, James. Uh, for those keeping score, Brian is the first Bar Leader Series grad to be on Off the Record, so congratulations. Yes, very nice. So. Uh, before we start, and one of the first bar leader
1: classes.
0: Which one were you?
1: Uh, hard to remember. It was a while ago.
0: It's sad how yeah. long ago. Yeah. What? I was yeah. second. I think you were third. In so. fact, I was in uh,
1: Judge Hanlon's class.
0: Okay. okay. Well, I was, I was about seven. to mention Barley lead- <laughs> and Judge Hanlon would be the first uh, bar leader series grad to be on the federal bench. Yes. Lots yes. of state judges that okay. go through that path. Two bar presidents about to be three, and then you know. But you're the first one on off the record. Congratulations! So before we start, I want to give you some credibility. Yes, I I need it. Okay, so let's. You have a bow tie on. I do. That would indicate to me you know something about the Supreme Court. <laughs> it makes me think Kingsfield, only a lot okay. younger. Okay. okay. And, or
1: I'm the chapter president of the Federal Society, which I am. Oh, so. you are. <laughs> okay. Well, there. It, I didn't even know that. That's not on your website.
0: Why is that not on your website? Oh, it
1: is. It is.
0: No seersucker suit today? No, that no, no. I should have. So. I mean, you're a Vanderbilt grad.
1: I know. I know. This is where I began wearing bow ties. So.
0: Yes. You're a sort of a southerner. You're, yeah, you're, sort you're, of. You're Atticus in an appellate uniform. My family you
1: know? is from Wisconsin, but I, I consider myself a, a transplant in a
0: way. So you look like a pro- professor with your beard. Your hair's yeah. a little long. So yeah. I figured you would know this stuff. And And besides... All the other things we have just said, I heard you and Judge Hanlon, again, a Bar Leader Series grad, Jane Dahl Wilson and Daniel Pulliam from February speak on the topic of last term with the U.S. Supreme Court, and the place was packed, and it it was really interesting, and so uh, I was thinking you could share some insight here. happy to be here. So first question is a softball. Why are you so interested in what happens with the U.S. Supreme Court? Because you're kind of a junkie, right? I'm kind of a junkie. Uh,
1: I am interested in appellate decisions generally, and particularly at the Supreme Court for a couple of reasons. One, uh, it, it, they are important to my practice as an appellate lawyer. I need to stay up on uh, the case law at the highest court. Two, I learn an incredible amount when I read the Supreme Court decisions. They are so incredibly thoroughly reasoned. Uh, They give me ideas for my own cases, and I learn how to improve my own arguments. And then finally, you know, uh, we have found, and one of the reasons we do the presentation that you saw, is that everybody, uh, all lawyers, to one degree or another, have some interest in the Supreme Court and what they're doing, no matter what their practice is. And so uh, as a result of that, we do an annual Supreme Court roundup. And so I just generally need to stay up on the case.
0: I mean, citizens, just non-lawyers, are also interested in this. It determines who they vote for for president sometimes. So let me take you back to February 13, 2016. Mm -hmm. Justice Scalia passes away on a hunting trip. Congress is concerned that there's an empty seat and so Scalia is quickly replaced by Merrick Garland. Correct. So how does that work out? How's Justice Garland doing? <laughs> <All
1: right. laughs> justice Garland is still Judge Garland.
0: He's you know? still Judge Garland. Yes. Yeah. Hey, I'm sure he's doing yeah. fine, right? <laughs> he is doing he, just he's fine. He's not wondering what might have been. Right. right. No, I'm sure not. So Neil Gorsuch eventually, we were trying to remember sometime yeah. in 2017, Correct. replaces Scalia. Um, before he becomes a justice, what, what do we know about? Justice Gorsuch, because I think, or excuse me, Judge Gorsuch, because I think sometimes we find people yes. change when they become to the, come to the Supreme Court.
1: You know, uh, what we knew about him is that, first of all, he was a highly regarded 10th Circuit Court of Appeals judge. Uh, he had also been a Kennedy uh, clerk, and he was a highly regarded writer uh, in the vein of Scalia. He had a, and has sort of a Uh, A verve to his writing, sort of a man-to-man, personal style, and uh, he was noticed for that.
0: And so in 2018, not quite at the beginning of the term, Judge Kavanaugh joins as a justice. Everything I know about Judge Kavanaugh came from Saturday Night Live, okay? (laughs) Okay. So, you know, what do we know about him, you know, taking away the Devil's Triangle, Squee, all that other stuff? You know, what do we know about him as a judge before he gets on the Supreme Court bench
1: well another Kennedy clerk just like Justice Gorsuch but in contrast not a Westerner a very much an established establishmentarian Easterner uh, grew up in DC in the political culture there uh, and uh, taught uh, classes at Harvard very academic in his approach not White is known for his writing, but highly regarded as a judge.
0: I didn't realize both of them. Maybe I knew that and forgot, but I knew Kavanaugh was a Kennedy clerk. How are they like Kennedy, and how are they not? Because Kennedy was the swing boat on yes. most sort of social issue cases, yes. and he had a libertarian streak for a guy that was appointed Correct. by Reagan and was considered a conservative. How are they like Kennedy? How are they not?
1: Well, interestingly enough, they do not have the libertarian streak that Justice Kennedy has, or at least not as strong as he has. Uh, And they are both different from each other. Um, Justice Kennedy was conservative, but he was a swing vote in cases involving many social issues, gay rights, abortion, things like that. I don't think that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh will be swing votes on those issues. They are, however, uh, similar to Justice Kennedy, swing votes in their own rights, but different ways. Uh, Justice Gorsuch uh, is not infrequently a swing vote in criminal cases, in uh, civil libertarian cases involving criminal procedure and the like. Justice Kavanaugh has likewise proved as a swing vote, but there's no discernible pattern to his swing votes quite yet. He was a swing vote last term in a case involving Batson, the case that says that you can't strike a juror because of his or her race. He concluded that there had been a Batson violation in that case, voting with liberals. And he was also a swing vote in an antitrust case in, uh, involving Apple, and voted with liberals in that case. Uh, but you know, he has been on the court for such a short time that it's really hard to pick up a pattern in terms of when he will be the swing vote.
0: And so let me just sort of jump in to last term. You know, Let's talk about the big cases from the 2018- 2019 term. You know The big case that I remember. Last summer, reading about it, it seems like around July first, you get a big, you know, there's the the Obamacare decision. It was a gerrymandering yes. case. My understanding is the court said something to the effect of this: this isn't our call, right? Okay, T- tell me what happened and how did they let how what how did they get to that decision?
1: Well, this issue has been sort of uh, floating around at the court for some time, and Uh, Several years ago, Justice Kennedy wrote an opinion which suggested that there might be a test by which the court could determine whether there was too much partisan gerrymandering. And that effectively invited parties to develop such a test and bring it to the court for review. But the court had never really decided what that test actually would be, nor did they ever really decide whether partisan gerrymandering cases were justiciable, which is the issue that um, they ultimately decided in the Ruscio case, decided last term. So you have sort of a history here. The Supreme Court took a gerrymandering case in I don't know what, it was around the time that Justice Scalia passed away. It ended up going away um, for technical standing reasons. And so that still left the merits of the issue to be decided. Justice Kennedy then retires. And the question then became, how would his replacement think about this issue? It seemed as though Justice Kennedy was poised to conclude that there was a manageable judicial standard by which you could determine whether partisan gerrymandering was beyond constitutional limits. He leaves the court, and so we have a 4-4 tie. How is Kavanaugh going to look at this issue? And the case goes up to the court, this term, combined cases involving partisan gerrymandering by Democrats, another case involving partisan gerrymandering by by Republicans, and ultimately by a 5-4 vote with the Chief Justice writing, uh, Kavanaugh votes with the conservatives and concludes, look, um, this is uh, not something that we can manage. And I think what may have been going through their mind in part is that under a quirk in the law, Cases involving gerrymandering are automatically appealable to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court does not have discretion to turn them away. So it's looking down the road, and it and it has to be thinking, if we conclude that there is a manageable standard by which we can judge whether there has been too much partisan gerrymandering, we're going to get a lot of these cases going forward. And I can't help but wonder <laughs> whether the court was too enthused about that and whether that informed their ultimate decision that these issues were really, at the end of the day, not justiciable.
0: So who figures it out? Is it legislatures figure it out?
1: Legislatures figure it out. Uh, States and state supreme courts may have some say here in terms of whether there has been uh, unconstitutional gerrymandering under their own constitutions. I don't think this. This issue is entirely
0: dead, but I think it is dead at the U.S. Supreme Court. Dead at the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah. So, do we buy that? We like that decision.
1: Uh, a lot. Well, of... It depends on who you talk to. Uh, <laughs>
0: okay. Well, let's say we're talking to a liberal.
1: Okay. Well, no. Uh, in fact, uh, Justice uh, Kavin, uh, excuse me, Justice Kagan—read her dissent from the bench, and apparently. Uh, there was quite a bit of emotion in her voice. She was highly upset by the conservatives' decision in this case. And, you know, she had a lot of passion for the issue, as I I think that a lot of um, people of similar ideological stripes had passion for the
0: issue. Okay. So the next issue, next big one I remember, is the census case. Correct. Okay. Tell me about the census case.
1: Sure. So this issue comes up. Uh, in one way or another every 10 years, right? The Constitution provides for a decennial census. Congress has the power to administer that census. It has delegated its authority to do so to the Secretary of Commerce. President Trump is elected and they decide that they would like to reinstate a citizenship question on the census. Citizenship had been a question on the census in one form or another for a period of about 200 years, but there was a break uh, from that practice for some time prior to Trump's inauguration. He uh, instructed the Secretary of Commerce to figure out a rationale for asking that question. Apparently, the Secretary asked the Department of Justice, to make a request to him for citizenship data, they did so saying we need this data, Secretary of Commerce, to enforce the Voting Rights Act. The Secretary of Commerce says, great, that will be our rationale for reinstating a citizenship question. Predictably, a variety of plaintiffs sue, including a number of states, including the state of New York. And their basic argument is, look, we know when we ask about citizenship, it depresses the response rate, which means you have a less accurate census. That can't be constitutional. And that's ultimately what the Second Circuit holds. The case goes up to the U.S. Supreme Court, the administration says, look, we need a decision on this immediately. Excuse me, the Second Circuit did not decide that. The District Court in New York decided that. The, the administration said to the Supreme Court, we needed a, a decision on this immediately. Let us leapfrog the Second Circuit. Let us take our case directly to you. We need a decision immediately because we need to begin printing census forms. And so we need to know whether we can ask about citizenship. So the court says, fine. They take the case And in a fractured and, to my way of thinking, very odd decision written largely by the chief justice, the majority concludes that (laughs) everything uh, that the secretary did was appropriate under the Administrative uh, Procedure Act. He acted reasonably, gave a reasonable rationale, uh, but then at the very end of the decision, the last couple of pages, the chief decides uh, that the reason he gives for reinstating the citizenship question is pretextual, false. And so what they end up doing with four conservatives dissenting, they send the case back to uh, the secretary and say, uh, you know, by all appearances, what you did looks appropriate, but it was kind of a made up reason. So come up with a better reason. And so then the question was, well, is there time to do that and and litigate this new reason before the the census forms have to be printed? And Trump, of course, immediately suggests that, oh, yeah, we're going to come up with a new reason and uh, everything will be fine. But shortly thereafter, backs down. And so this issue goes away. And so there's no citizenship question on the census. Um, query whether it will come up in another 10 years. I suspect it might, depending on who's
0: president. Okay. And then the next, to, in your mind anyway, the next biggest decision is the Hyatt case, correct? Correct. And not because of the facts and the law, but sort of what you see going on in the periphery, correct?
1: Right? So it, it it's exemplary of what is going on at the court. So that case involves sovereign immunity. Can a state like California be sued in another state's court. So a guy uh, uh, who lived in Nevada sued the state of California relating to a tax audit in the state of Nevada. And this case, uh, in a lawyer's dream, ends up going to the
0: Supreme Court three times. And a client's nightmare. Yeah, well,
1: And a client's nightmare. Precisely. I stole that from you. Man, yes, and... Uh, uh, so finally, it goes up to the Supreme Court for the third time, and the question is: You know, can this really happen? Can California be sued in Nevada? And the court ultimately concludes, overruling Nevada versus Hall, a precedent from the 1970s, saying no, uh, California cannot be sued in Nevada court. It has sovereign immunity. Five-four decision: conservatives in the majority, liberals in the dissent. Now, sovereign immunity is not, to my way of thinking, a hot button issue that gets tends to get people riled up. In fact, no one really thinks about sovereign immunity other than maybe government lawyers and, and academics. Um, so what is going on here? Why is the court dividing along ideological lines, 5-4? Well, I think one of the reasons that there is a division along these lines. It's not so much the dispute about whether the precedent at issue in Hyatt, Nevada versus Hall, should be overruled, although they do discuss that. The main issue is whether we should be overruling our precedents really at all. Uh, And interestingly enough, um, in a dissent by Justice Breyer, the first case that he cites, or at least one of the cases that he cites for the notion that they should not be overruling precedents, at least in the way that the majority did here, was Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is the case that reaffirmed the core holding Roe v. Wade. That indicates to me that the liberals are concerned that by voting to overrule any case, they are making it easier to overrule Uh, cases that they really, really care about, one of which is Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And you see this sort of pattern in other cases, and you, you have to scratch your head and wonder why are the parties so vehemently fighting over whether a particular precedent should be overruled when that precedent is you know, maybe not all that controversial one way or another. It doesn't evoke a hot-button issue. And I really think it's the fight is not so much about that particular precedent in the, involved in that case, but other cases that may come before the court in the
0: future. So stare decisis, we got to keep the rule the way it is. Right. But if we did that for 100 years, Plessy v. Ferguson, I mean, some terrible decisions would Correct. still be on the books. Correct. But when you want, if you like precedent— You want to say stare decisis as much as possible. And does that affect other cases that come before you? If you have four justices who are before sight unseen wanting to just keep the rule of law the same. Yes. that, That affects what happens at the end of that case, right? It's not just about your case, your facts, and the law.
1: No. It affects other cases. It affects how the justices look at other cases. Um. Their general views on precedent are filtered uh, through their view of certain cases that they find particularly important.
0: So what are we learning about? I think you mentioned what we've learned about Justice Kavanaugh and Gorsuch when I asked about, you know, for Kennedy. We're learning that they're a swing vote in some cases. What are we learning about? Justice Roberts, who, by the way, Hoosier, not a bar leader series grad, but a Hoosier. What are we learning about him?
1: Yes. Um, Well, one of the things you may not know, James, is that not only is he a Hoosier, but he clerked uh, at my old law firm for one summer in the early 80s, Ice Miller.
0: Did they give him an offer?
1: Uh, I hope so. Although I apparently he went to Hawaii the next summer to clerk, and I you know I can't blame
0: him. So And then where did he end up? He was a practicing lawyer that practiced before the Supreme Court, yes, right? Yes, he was a
1: lawyer in DC, I think, for Hogan Lovells, very okay. highly regarded. Uh did not end up coming back to Indiana, but he did okay. He did all right. He He's did done okay. all right. So what have we learned about the Chief? The Chief uh is a, a swing vote in his own right in certain cases, and we saw this this term uh, both in the census case and in a case called Kaiser versus Wilkie, which was an important administrative law case. I won't go into the details of that one. Um, and he has um, uh, sort of a a view of precedent that differs, I would say, slightly from, for example, Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch. Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch are really uh, quite willing to start from scratch, overrule just about any decision that they think has been wrongly decided. Uh, The chief is much more of uh, an establishmentarian and more reluctant, thus, to overrule uh, precedent. I think he's most willing to overrule precedent When the issue is a constitutional one, he's less likely to overrule precedent, as we saw last term in a case called Wayfair, when the problem or issue can be fixed by Congress. So if he thinks the court has got it wrong, but the issue can be fixed by the legislature, he's much more inclined to leave the case on the books. Or vote to leave the case on the books and let the legislature fix the issue.
0: So he's the obviously the chief of that court, yes, and he doesn't maybe like to make waves if he doesn't have to. Is that good for the stability of the court and the credibility of the court?
1: Well, the news, you know, about him is that because he is the chief, he has the extra burden of uh, worrying about the court's reputation in a particular. Uh, way that's unique to the chief. And I think he really has pushed uh, for as much agreement between the conservatives and liberals, particularly when the court was only an eight-member court in the wake of uh, the Scalia's death. So, you know, he may think about his role and the court's role in a slightly different way uh, than others associated with justices. Or
0: if he would, if he was just Justice Roberts. Uh,
1: correct don't know that for sure, but I get that sense and I understand that. Um, and so that 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 influences his thinking on certain cases.
0: You talk about the court's reputation. Regardless of what you think about the show, uh, when we saw Justice Kavanaugh and his confirmation yeah, hearings yeah. and the witnesses that came before, I would imagine the court cringed during watching that on CNN all day or if they did. Did that you know, just, let's call it a distraction. Yeah, that distraction affect any of the decisions you think last term, or think cases they didn't take, or yeah, I think it did.
1: Um, I think the court, in the wake of the Kavanaugh controversy, attempted to put off as many controversial cases as it possibly could, including, for example, um, some cases involving Title VII and whether. It uh, covers, um, excuse me, whether it covers discrimination because of sexual orientation or gender identity and other cases that I think are, are high, high profile, Tempted to put, push those off as best it could to lower the temperature. It was largely successful in doing so. It did take the census case, for example, but it had to. It had to. And that was a high profile case, but jurisdictionally it had no choice. You know, um, next term is not going to be like last term. There are going to be a number of blockbuster decisions, I think, high profile, controversial. And so now that there's some distance between the Kavanaugh confirmation, um, I think that they're willing to take up those cases at this point. And um, it's going to be an interesting term for sure.
0: What are we looking for? What What are we looking for next term? Yeah. What, what do you think is on the horizon there?
1: There are three sets of cases that I think um, lawyers should be looking out for uh, that I think are going to be particularly interesting. First are the Title VII cases. There's a trio of cases involving the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and its prohibition on discrimination because of sex, and the question is whether that covers. Discrimination because of sexual orientation and gender identity. What makes, first of all, the issue is highly controversial. But what makes it particularly interesting to me is that conservatives do not uh, necessarily ad- ad- agree on this question. You may remember that a couple of years ago, the Seventh Circuit decided a case called Hively versus Ivy Tech, addressing this very issue, whether Title VII covers discrimination because of sexual orientation. And in an en banc decision, the court concluded that it did uh, cover discrimination because of sexual orientation. The lead decision was by Chief Judge Wood, a Clinton appointee. Interestingly enough, Judge Easterbrook, a conservative and a textualist, joined the majority opinion. In dissent, uh, Judge Sykes who uh, is very much a textualist, disagreed, uh, believing that no one understood at the time the Civil Rights Act was passed that the words discrimination because of sex included discrimination because of sexual orientation, and she argued that this is really a problem for Congress to fix. Uh, So I think about that, and then I think, you know, how are the conservatives on the Supreme Court going to rule I would not be surprised if we saw some difference of opinion uh, on this question. And that's what I think makes this issue so uh, very interesting.
0: Is that the big thing to look out for? The
1: other two issues that I would look out for are, first, a case involving DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. This is an Obama-era policy putting off deportation of Children who are not American citizens, but who are brought here by their parents from other countries illegally. The Dreamers. The Dreamers. They grew up here. Very sympathetic case. Uh, But the question in that case is whether the Trump administration can effectively rescind the policy to not uh, deport for a period of time the Dreamers and uh, their decision to orderly uh, wind down that policy has been uh, challenged. Um, The government says, uh, look, uh, live by executive order, die by executive order. There's nothing wrong with Trump rescinding this policy. He gave an appropriate rationale, and that rationale is uh, their concern that the policy is illegal because it didn't go through notice and comment. And also because a similar policy called DAPA, Deferred Action for Parents of Americans, um, was ultimately struck down uh, or enjoined by the Fifth Circuit, and the Supreme Court affirmed that decision 4-4. So the government's argument is if that policy is illegal, the very similar DACA policy is also illegal. That's going to be an incredibly high-profile decision that may not be decided until the end of June in 2020, And, of course, we'll be in the midst of the presidential um, race at that point. So that could be significant for that reason.
0: And then we got a third. And
1: then we got a third. And the third um, could turn out to be a dud. Uh, But nonetheless, it'll be interesting to watch. The case is called New York Rifle and Pistol Association. It's a Second Amendment case. One of the reasons that case is significant is because the U.S. Supreme Court has not taken a Second Amendment case since 2010 and there has been some consternation among certain members of the court that the court has been sort of treating the Second Amendment as a second-class right and not taking cases to decide the scope and breadth of that uh, right. Well, finally, they take uh, one of these cases. The facts are uh, fairly simple. New York City had an ordinance prohibiting firearms owners from transporting their firearms, even though they are locked and put away in the trunk, to second homes and to uh, pistol ranges and rifle ranges outside of the city of New York. That was challenged. The Second Circuit concluded that that law was constitutional. The Supreme Court takes the case, and New York says, hmm, this may not turn out too well for us. And so they repeal the ordinance... And the state of New York uh, passes more liberal laws allowing for transportation of firearms in the state. And so now they argue the case is moved. The plaintiff in that case says, well, hold off, uh, not so fast. Uh, there's nothing preventing you or other cities from passing a similar law in the future. And you really haven't addressed the whole problem here. You assume that states and cities have the ability to regulate generally the transportation of firearms. And that's an issue that needs to be decided. The scope and breadth of the ability to transport firearms, we still need a decision on that. It's hard for me to see how this case is not moot. And the court well knows that there are other Second Amendment cases in the pipeline I, my guess is that they will conclude its moot, but we'll see.
0: Okay. And so you mentioned, I think it was the Hyatt decision, was the lawyer's dream. Yes. You know, there have been two guests on Off the Record who have argued before the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay. I assume it's your dream to argue before the U.S. Supreme Absolutely. Court or one of them?
1: Absolutely. I've, I've argued in a number of different uh, courts of appeals, federal courts of appeals, state courts of appeals, but not the U.S. Supreme Court. They take so few cases. And the kinds of cases that they typically take are not the kinds of cases that I typically handle.
0: Based on the guests that we've had, you need to take on death penalty work? Yes. Okay. Exactly. Monica Foster argued before the U.S. Supreme Court. And then we didn't talk to Rick about this, but I understand, even though he's a death penalty lawyer, that he got to argue before the U.S. Supreme Court over pornography and Uh First Amendment. Uh Ah. And then Scott Chin, I yes. talked to him when he represented the city of Indianapolis. He, he argued in front of them as well. And he told me they give you really cool pens. Yes, that's my understanding.
1: And, uh, you know, you can frame them and all of that. So yeah. I'm
0: looking forward to that. All right. Well, we got, how much <laughs> longer are you practicing?
1: Well, as long as uh, I can. You know, okay. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm young. I've only been practicing 19 years, so I figure I got another 50 or 60. See, years I to go. feel
0: old. I've been practicing 19. Okay? Oh, okay. So, yeah. Um, all right, we need to get you some death penalty work. <laughs> hey, thanks for being here. Thanks for sharing your knowledge. Thanks for getting us ready for the next term and first Monday. Thank you for having me. It was fun. I'm oh, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it, and we can now go off the record. Thank you to Brian Paul for going off the record with us. If you'd like to sign up for Fagre's Supreme Court updates, please go to Fagre's website and look up Brian and drop him an email, and he will get you in touch with whomever you need to get in touch with to get you signed up. On a somber note, since we last recorded, we lost our friend Dean Norman Lefstein, who died at the age of 82 on August 29th. He was my dean when I went to law school, and he was a national leader in the push for the funding of quality indigent defense and having our justice system fulfill what he called Gideon's promise. But I wanted to tell you a personal story instead of just reading his resume. In 1997, I was a law student and I was doing decently at school, but I also felt lost. I could never imagine using the things I was learning in business associations or civil procedure or what I learned about consideration and contracts in the real world. At least none of that stuff seemed to be relevant to what I wanted to do in the real world. And then I took criminal law and I suddenly saw, hey, I could use that case or that statute to help a client. Same thing happened when I took crim pro evidence and con law. I got pretty damn good grades in those classes and I started toying with the idea of being a criminal defense lawyer. My mom was supportive, but she didn't seem too impressed by the idea. My dad seemed more excited, but I think at the time, he was still mad at a police officer for giving him a speeding ticket. But lots of people told me, don't do it. Don't be a criminal defense lawyer. It's dangerous. There's no money in it. It's a ticket to hell. I could see what they're saying, so I started looking elsewhere, hoping something else would interest me, but nothing did. Then I saw Dean Lefstein speak to a small group at the law school. Dean Lefstein dedicated his academic life to criminal law, He had started one of the models for the delivery of public defense representation when he was director of the Public Defender Agency in the District of Columbia and when he led the Indiana Public Defender Commission. When he spoke to us, he spoke about his time in law school, how he did well in law school, and how he was living the dream with a job at a big firm in Chicago where he defended all state in insurance defense cases. Then one day he said he was sitting at his desk working away, And then he had a revelation. He told us, I suddenly looked up from my desk and realized I didn't really care what happened to Allstate's money. And I wanted to do something I cared about. And what I cared about was people's liberty. So that was it for me. I said to myself, I gotta do something I care about. And I'm lucky to say I do. I care about my criminal clients. I care about my lawyer clients. I care about what happens to them. I care about fairness. I care if my clients are falsely accused or overly accused, and I care because I don't think any person should be judged wholly by their worst act. So sometimes my job aggravates me. In fact, today it's really aggravating. Sometimes it scares me, frustrates me, but I always care about what I do. And in part, I thank Dean Lefstein for that. When a prominent member of our legal community stood up the front of law school and said that the Sixth Amendment matters, in my mind— he muted all of the people who told me not to do criminal defense. In fact, I can't even remember who those people were at this point. So I hope you go to work and do something you care about today. As lawyers, we get to care for a living. Not every profession could say that. And thank you, Dean Lefstein, for having an effect on my legal education and my life as an attorney. Your nudge in the right direction will always be appreciated. And thank you all for listening to Off the Record.